Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We've talked a lot on this show about how artificial intelligence is being used in healthcare, both administratively and clinically. We've also talked a lot about the idea of consumer-driven healthcare, where the idea is that healthcare competes with each other like other industries do, like retail and auto, with transparency of prices, transparency of quality, and with a consumer-centric bent. Unfortunately, none of us really like to go to the hospital or to our doctors, and our healthcare system doesn't make these visits any easier. So what if AI could make these visits easier? Enter Vital, a company that is seeking to use AI to empower patients, families, and clinicians during and after a hospital visit. And with us today is the co-founder of Vital, Aaron Patzer, to tell us how it might work. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. I'm Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience for all. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I, Weedy. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and create solutions for a better health system. And this is the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. And as I said, today we're excited to talk to Aaron Patzer. He's the co-founder of Vital. Aaron was also the founder of Mint.com. After degrees in electrical engineering at Duke and Princeton Universities, Patzer began his career in the internet boom years working for various websites, and after a few years, founded Mint.com. In 2008, Patzer was listed in Inc. Magazine's Top 30 Under 30. And since then, Aaron has moved into healthcare and has worked in a number of companies that bring health IT to the help of providers. So welcome to the show, Aaron. I'm very uh, excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me, Matthew. And uh, let's talk about your um, uh, your biography, your your origin story, if you will. Um, uh, exciting, you know, uh, internet uh, boom years uh, in Silicon Valley, and then you land on a great idea, Mint.com. Um, looks more into to be more in the fintech kind of area, perhaps. Uh, and then over the years, you seem to have moved into healthcare. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I am an engineer through and through, um, electrical engineering, computer engineering, computer science uh, at, at, at Duke and Princeton. And so I care a lot about uh, building technology. Um, I've got about 10 patents to my name in all in algorithms and artificial intelligence. So I'm a CEO, but uh, my, my engineering team has banned me from programming, but I still do it a little bit on, on the side, uh, including some, some AI algorithms. Um, did about 10 of them, actually, at, at Vital to predict everything from patient admission to probable diagnosis to uh, whether somebody would have a good patient experience or not. But it's um it's not obvious how you know I would have gotten into healthcare. Um, Mint was one of those things that it took off like a rocket ship. Um, when we sold it to into it, it had three or four million users. Eventually, got up to twenty five million people using Mint. Um, big data collection uh, issue. We connected to twelve thousand different banks and brokerages and, and mortgages which is not dissimilar to the data problem that we face in healthcare, connecting up to all of these different data silos, insurance information, pricing information. It is an absolute mess, but I kind of have a lot of um, experience in a past career here. Um, 
you know, after Mint, I was the head of product for Intuit. So if you use TurboTax or QuickBooks or Quicken uh, or Mint, I've had a, a hand in it. So I've been fortunate enough to, to build products that have been used by hundreds of millions of people. Uh, Vital now has over a million patients using it every year for patient experience in hospitals. So we guide you through a hospital or emergency experience, probably move into the surgical and operating space um, soon. Um, but it it wasn't my background. You know, I was, I was through and through a consumer person and now it's enterprise software selling to we're in a hundred hospitals now. So I, I love that story too, because uh, w- the, the thread, right. Is certainly the building idea, the engineering aspect, but also the, the consumer centric idea. Yeah. Right. And so that feels like what you're bringing from the other industries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like our mission at vital is to create beautiful software to help um, patients and their families understand uh, their health experience. I mean, me, it is an absolute tragedy that we hand people like a piece of paper that's like, hey, Matthew, your, your bun is 26 micrograms per deciliter. And you're like, great. What do I do with that information? And, you know, we're like, listen, this tests your liver function. And it's looking a little low or this measures whether you might be dehydrated or not. Um, and this one tests your ability to, to fight infections and it's looking low or it's looking high or this one is your muscle strength. So putting everything into uh, to human terms um, and as a result, we get really, really high engagement. Um, about 60% of all patients who are offered to use the software use the software in hospitals or emergency rooms. Like everybody's just glued to their phone, looking at AI wait times and um, all the personalized recommendations that we do. Um, whereas anybody else who's sort of in this field in healthcare, because they're not really patient centric, not really focused on the end to end experience, they get like about ten percent uses. So we have about five times the the, the industry standard um, use. Very good. And I think the other uh, original thing, and you've just brought this out with about Vital 2 and your idea here is that, you know, it is a patient experience and there's different sections of it, right? There's a, there's a difference between when you're about to go to a hospital or you're preparing to go to a procedure and, you know, after you've exited and what do you do now? Those are different things. But there's this idea that it is all one of the patient journey and the patient only sees that as one journey. They're not thinking, oh, I need to go one place for this and another place for that. Exactly. So when you think like a patient, and that's the first thing that you have to do when you think about patient experience, they do not care how your hospital operates, the different departments. This is emergency. This is inpatient. They're like, listen, I I fell from a ladder. I might have a broken leg. Um, My experience is the fall from the ladder, getting to the hospital all the way through to where I'm back to walking or running like I did before. And so we do a terrible job there. You know, emergency rooms are absolutely overcrowded. You get in and there's 140 million emergency room visits in the U.S. every year. 140 million. That's like 41% of the population. And some people go multiple times. But that's a lot of us who are going to the emergency room. And you get there and you're like, what? I haven't done this hopefully in years. What's next? You're like, when am I going to see a doctor? Well, you're not. You're going to see a nurse first. So set expectations. And they're going to take your vital signs. And they might take your blood. And here's what they're going to use it for. And here's exactly how long you're going to wait. Um, And by the way, predicting wait times is really difficult because people are coming in the back door through the ambulance bay. 
you know, maybe with gunshot wounds or heart attacks who might go ahead of you. There are people who might not look as sick as you who arrive later, which can be very frustrating as a patient. And so uh, predicting wait times and giving that range just sets expectations. You can use AI to, to not only predict wait times, but to apologize to people automatically, like treat them like humans. I'm sorry you've been waiting for 90 minutes. Can we get you a blanket or a bottle of water? It makes a huge difference. Like, I kid you not, the Google rating average for emergency rooms is 2.3. You would never go to a restaurant with that Google rating. We, we get our hospitals up to like four and a half, you know, stars or better. Like, you, you'd be like, I, I, I could eat there. Um, and so it, it really has a profound impact. And for hospitals, you know, the ER is where 50, 60% of your admitted patients come from. And so um, your compensation depends on your patient satisfaction scores, at least for, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, government sort of things, HCAP scores, right? So you'd be fined millions of dollars if people have a bad experience. So there's an economic incentive, but there's also an incentive to patient health, better patient experiences, better outcomes. Um, so, you know, if you think about how do you use AI and patient experience, you use it, we use it sort of in three ways. One is um, what information we present to patients. The second is how that information is presented to patients. And the third one is on the clinical side, which is let's help automate things for doctors and nurses. Excellent. Um, what you talked about too, about, uh, you know, even apologizing from the, uh, from the software. It reminds me of a study, I think that just came out a few weeks ago that talked about how in some cases the AI in interacting with a patient was thought to be more empathetic, uh, than even the physicians or the clinicians, right? Um, so <laughs> yes. So you think that AI, you're like, okay, well, it's, it's a computer. It's a robot. It's, it's going to be, you know, we, we need the human touch. Actually, no. Um, I mean, you do absolutely. Your, uh, your doctors and nurses and techs are the ones who are providing the care, but they're also rushed. And so what you can do with AI is you can provide a, a really personalized experience. So the first thing is like, what do you present? Um, and the software experience for somebody who is, you know, giving birth should be very different than the person who is having hip replacement surgery should be very different than the person who's going in there for chest pain. But most software experiences are the exact same, even though those three scenarios are radically different. So what information do you present to people? So we, we actually use AI when we look at your doctor and nurse's notes, your reason for visit, your medical history, and use that to assign patient education automatically so the doctors and nurses don't have to. And so that it changes real time during your stay as lab results come in, as the doctor discovers new things, as they remove you know, in their differential diagnosis, it's not these things, but it might be these three things. Read up on those. You're going to have this procedure. So it's what do you present? And then it's how you present it. So one of the things that we've started to experiment with is um, the 21st Century Cures Act necessitates that you release doctor's notes to patients immediately in the patient portal, right? The problem is they're like, Hey, uh, your, your son has a acute bout of epistasis and you're like, I don't know what that means. It's like, he's having a bad nosebleed or your mother, you know, suffered from a cerebral infarction. And an average person is like, why didn't you just call that a stroke? <laughs> and so there is all of this medical jargon and, and that's the easy part. 
The worst part is like you're getting hemorrhoarthroplasty in the AM, NPO at midnight. NPO is an abbreviation of a Latin phrase. And you should translate that into just don't eat or drink after midnight. You're going to have surgery. So translating things into human terms that an actual, you know, like high school educated person can understand, hugely important. Translating into multiple languages, hugely important. So speak to people like they're real humans. Because all the people who are in the medical profession, an easy analogy is, you ever read like a legal contract for your mortgage or for a credit card? And you're like, I don't know what any of this means. I guess I'll just sign it. That's the way everyone else thinks about your profession. You just happen to know it, but they don't. And you have to take the time to explain every lab result, every diagnosis in human terms. But AI can do that automatically so you can focus on caring for people. Yeah, I, I loved your sentence. I think you said uh, you need to speak to humans um, as if they're humans. And the way to do that yeah. is through artificial intelligence. <laughs> that's great. I know. It's crazy, right? <laughs> right. Um, um, so that's great. And, and um, you know, I want to point the readers to and, and we'll probably put it in the um, in the, uh, the write up about this uh, podcast. But your Forbes article that came out recently where you did talk about the places where AI can help. Um, there's a great example um, of this idea of translating, you know, the lingo that doctors use into English for humans. What else has changed with AI um, in terms of that patient experience? I, I think most hospitals think that they're patient centric. And I certainly have talked to lots of insurance companies and they've tried for years to get patients to interact with their portals and their softwares and things like that. How has AI changed that? And, and the human uh, language component is certainly a big one. So hyper relevance is what AI allows us to do. I'll give you an example. Um, when you're discharged from the hospital or an emergency room, you often get handed a 15 page packet of paper. It's your discharge instructions. And so it has, um, here's the medications you should pick up in the pharmacy. Here's what you should and shouldn't do. Here's the warning signs to look out for. Here's our COVID procedures, which may now be two years out of date. By the way, don't smoke or drink, you, you know, whether that's relevant for you or not. It just sort of gets put in there. There's like 80% of it's boilerplate sort of stuff and then printouts of patient education that are pages long and not that relevant. And so I think the study is 80, 85% of people just throw this away. Like if you want to see a tragedy, look at the trash bin outside of an emergency room and it's just full of the instructions that people should follow. Why? Because you're you're tired. It's 3 a.m. You're discharged from the emergency department. They hand you paper. It is not in any particular order. It's like off of a dot matrix printer. So we can use AI to parse that and say, yeah, actually 80 of 80% 80 of this is boilerplate. Here are the five to-do lists uh, or items on here. You know, number one, pick up these two medications. Here's the side effects. Here is the best price that you can get. Um, on them and they were sent to this pharmacy if this isn't the pharmacy or by the way it's closed because now it's 2 a.m ask your doctor to send them to another pharmacy or to give you a, a, a script um, so you can take it anywhere you know step two you need to you need to get a follow-up appointment with um this specialist you know s step three read the warning signs on when you need to come back so it's just a really easy parsing of uh this big document and then helping people with each step so again, translating those discharge instructions into a patient-friendly language. But even the follow-up, 
um, is something that you can help patients with from with AI. You know, the average person makes about five phone calls to schedule a follow-up visit. Your, your doctor's instructions, if you can get there, and very few people, again, do, um, it says in the next two or three days, you need to see a, a cardiology specialist. You go on to a find a doc, you look up cardiology, you know, there's 250 in the Chicago area that are affiliated with just that hospital system. And there's interventional cardiology and cardiology and pediatric cardiology and, and cardiac stress tests. And like, it's mind numbing. Which one of these ones am I supposed to go with? Do they take my insurance? Are, do they have a good cost? Do they have a good quality? Like there's no objectivity in this. And so you can actually crunch. And we have, along with a partner, crunched tens of millions of insurance records to figure out costs and quality and to match people to um, the right doctor at the right time who's hyper-specific to exactly what we know are in your, your notes. So those are some of the ways that um, we're beginning to solve this problem. But again, you're, it's thinking about it end to end. It's not just the discharge process. It's let's get the patient back to an example that I used. You fell from a ladder, you broke your leg back to running again. And that may be rehab. It may be specialists. It may be all the follow-ups. It's all the same experience to the patient and it should be unified. I love that concept, hyper uh, relevance that like synthesizes exactly what AI brings to the table. Um, that's terrific. So we've had, we've heard a lot of hype, of course, uh, AI is in the papers every day and certainly in the industry trades for um, healthcare. And, and there's a range of, um, you know, almost panic of we've got to, you know, get our arms around this. So we need the regulators to think about how to keep this thing from going out of control to, the panic is overblown. We've worked with AI for years and uh, we know not that we know what we're doing, but we know what we need to do to make it safe. Any comment on that on, and, and where you think, um, you know, the industry or the legislation should end on that? There's a couple of different questions in there. So I'll take the legislative um, last. First off, healthcare does not use enough AI. Um, as somebody who's come, you know, from Silicon Valley and at Vital, we use uh, natural language um, processing techniques and large language models like those in ChatGPT and have for years things that were only invented, you know, three months ago, six months ago, or a couple of years ago. Most of the industry is still stuck on what I wouldn't, wouldn't really call AI, but what I would call machine learning. So things like logistic and linear regression, a lot of people, for example, we have a sepsis model. The sepsis model it aids doctors in the emergency room to detect septic shock hours in advance. Almost everybody who's tried this, including a very large EHR, who will remain nameless, have used only vital signs, lab results, categorical information. What well, turns out the most important thing in there are free-form nurse's notes. This patient looks a little sluggish. This patient looks tired. Um, this per person looks out of it, but they don't have a history of dementia, so maybe that's the beginning of septic shock. And it's these little human things that are observed that can be picked up with advanced AI. You need more advanced AI. You need to be using the latest AI. You're probably not doing enough. Now, how do you keep it safe? How do you know that it's working? Um, first off, you should always use a doctor in the loop. 
AI is really good at what I would call like the general case, the, the, the things that typically happen, right? If you look at like a chat GPT and you use it and you try to create an essay, you, you know, Matthew, you're, you're doing content production. Like you could write a podcast script, you know, with chat GPT, but it would sound very generic. And so it's really good at, um, this is, this is the 95% of the time, you know, um, abdominal pain resolves this way or, or, um, a hip replacement will go that way. Um, doctors are really good at the exception and the rare cases. And so you always have to have a doctor in the loop. I would be very skeptical of, um, right now of AI that, um, diagnoses patients. But if you look at the way like large language models work, very good at summarizing, very good at finding synonyms, very good at knowing that, you know, these 10 pain medications are related to one another because they co-occur in the same context. If you understand how the AI is actually trained, you can understand where it's sort of safe to use it. That said, a lot of this stuff can be a black box. So how do you test a black box? Well, you put it through its paces. So um, we have this doctor-to-patient translation for CT scans, MRIs, um, X-rays, the the results. First off, it's a fairly confined space because imaging reports tend to be somewhat structured. And we're working on it for all all notes. But within um, this space, we had our own physicians look at literally thousands of translations and tweak parameters and, and grade them, you know, grade them with quite a scientific method. Is this, um, this is a good translation. This is missing information. The tone is off or this is, um, unsafe. Is there anything in here that would be immediately dangerous? Is there anything that would be dangerous, not today or tomorrow, but, um, a month or a year from now? And so you actually need a gradation. And then ideally you compare it um, to what humans do. So you actually have them summarize things. And because AI is never going to be perfect, that shouldn't be the standard that you hold it to. Is it better than humans or is it close? Because it never gets tired, um, never gets overloaded. That's the standard. And so, you know, we did that with our own um, internal team of physicians first as part of the quality control. And then we formed an external panel you know, with um, like literally like heads of uh, emergency from places like, um, you know, or Stanford or an Emory um, uh, and a, a number of other very prestigious institutes. Um, and then each of them is grading everything with some overlap because there's variation between the human graders as well. Um, and so we just have a really rigorous and scientific way to uh, evaluate these black boxes. And that's the only thing that makes me feel comfortable, you know, as a, as a CEO and as the head of product, that this is safe because you have to, you know, your ultimate standard is would I use it? Would if, if, if my mom goes to hospital, um, is, is this going to work for, for her? Um, so that answers the sort of safety question. Now the regulatory questions, those are those are more complicated as well as discrimination or bias. We train um, our models on uh, 
data from a number of different health systems and a number of different geographies, because it turns out abbreviations and terminology that are used in the Southeast are different than used in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. And so you actually need geographic distribution of your training um, data. We mm-hmm. consciously omit um, race and ethnicity um, from our models so that they're hopefully not biased. And we remove things like names and anything else that might um, add skew in there. It's also just not statistically uh, significant. So those are some of the things that you can do when you're training models. You should always update your models because if you trained it two years ago and then there's a pandemic or then there's a new disease, new terminology, new ICD and CPT codes need to go into the model. So you actually want to retrain things every few months with the fresher Uh, data that you have. So I think there can be a knee-jerk reaction, you know, towards uh, regulation, but um, the real solution is just apply the same rigor that you would to anything in medicine, publish peer-reviewed papers, be transparent about it. We we try not to hide anything like, you know, um, we'll release it to our own clients uh, first after testing, but you'll see a published paper. I know we've published five papers on how we do wait time estimation and, and other things with natural language processing. So uh, it's, it's out there. It's a, that sounds like a terrific rule of thumb. Like you said, you know, um, AI may not be perfect, but humans <laughs> pretty well aren't perfect either, right? So mm-hmm. hold AI to the same standards and maybe look for the same ways of checking and regulating AI as you would a human, as you would human beings, or like you said, uh, peer review journals and the like. So pretty much. That's a, that's a great rule of thumb. So this has been uh, terrific, Aaron. Uh, why don't we leave you with the last word? And then if you have any resources that you'd like to paint the, uh, 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 leave to the listeners. That'd be great. Sure. So I, I think I'll, I'll, I peppered this throughout the conversation, but just patient experience matters. And it's not just this check the box sort of thing, but these are people who are arguably having one of the worst days of their lives who are rightfully scared about what's happening, who may have an illness or a surgery or something that affects them for the rest of their life. You owe it to them to do right by them and their family to give them the most personalized experience, what you would want to give a family member, you know, anybody who's in health, if you're a doctor or you're a nurse listening to this, everybody around you probably asks you medical questions and can rely on you to explain things. But not everybody has that. And oddly, software is about the only way, given the nurse shortage and the doctor shortage that we have, to do something like that. And that's why I think Vital or anybody who's really pushing the edge on patient experience um, is important. And find out more, read our papers, look at the product yourself, schedule a demo, whatever, at um, uh, vitaler.com. Thank you, Aaron. This has been terrific. I appreciate you coming on the show. Talk to us. Great. Like uh, you, you did a, a excellent work, I think, just synthesizing some of the concepts that we're hearing so much about and putting them into certain categories. Uh, hyper-reliance, that idea of uh, um, very good at summarizing and treating an AI like you would treat a human, right? And terrific stuff. Um Thank you. This has been a great discussion with Aaron Patzer. He is the founder of MIT.com, and now he's the co-founder of Vital a company that uses machine learning and artificial intelligence to empower patients, families, and clinicians during and after a hospital visit. Thank you again, Aaron.
Thank you very much, Matthew. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us. Be safe. <laughs>